Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for today and thank you. Um, thank you for your work in history, your work in time and space, and that you have not left us to ourselves, but God, you yourself are the author of reformations and uh, through the work of the gospel, you bring us to repentance and uh, you save the lost and you take the saved and you remind them of their place and who they are. And God, I just give thanks to you for that. Thank you for your work in history, uh, that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And uh, and your word moves history. We give you thanks for that. We pray you'd help us now, instruct us and teach us and uh, grow us in the faith. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, for a long time now at Three Rivers Church, uh, every Sunday following All Saints Day, we've studied some person in Christian history. And uh, this year, uh, we are remembering the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, October 31st, 1517. Uh, this, this German monk invited the church to public debate on 95 particular statements of theological distinction. He felt like needed some... Uh, debate and launched one of the greatest movements in the history of the world. And uh, his name was Martin Luther. Uh, this morning I saw him in the back. Uh, he's making a guest appearance. I, I pulled a Johann Tetzel on him and shouted, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, what are you going to do about it? And he says, I have a hammer. And so I backed off. So uh, Martin threatened me with physical violence, and I figured we, we might ought to move on. Uh, big thanks this morning to Brittany uh, and, and the team that came yesterday, Chris uh, Hayes, Nicole Riley, Kayla Sander, Kelly Daly, and all the folks for their hard work and, and uh, setting up. If you haven't been in the back, you can go check 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 it out. It's really cool. The students and the kids have been working on their stained glass uh, for a couple of Sundays, and so there's stained glass up, and uh, there's a cobblestone walkway, and uh, there's uh, wooden doors which the kids will tack their 95 theses on, and it's cool, and so it makes me want to be a kid. Wish I was back there. No, you can't go back and participate. You're stuck right here. And so, uh, big thanks to those guys. Martin Luther, put you some references at the top of the notes, and the notes are up on the blog for you. Uh, key passage for us this morning as we launch into studying the life of Martin Luther. It's Romans 117. So if you got your Bibles, you can flip them open there. Romans 1, uh, really verse 16 and 17, but 117 in particular, Romans 3, 21 to 26. And these two passages are absolutely key. When we talk about Martin Luther, we would be amiss if we just talked about the life of Martin Luther, uh, which we do every year. We talk particularly from the Scripture passages that change their lives, and we speak about their lives, and we gain some insight on how we can imitate their example. But Romans 1, 16 and 17 and Romans 3, 21 to 26 absolutely transformed Martin Luther's life. And the reason is, is because the gospel's powerful. The good news saves lost people. The good news breaks down barriers. And Romans 1, 16 to 17 tells us, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what's it? The gospel, right? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Literally, from faith to faith. In other words, so that salvation is only had by faith. Which is why some of your translations will very simply say, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. This is complex Greek phrase, from faith to faith or from faith for faith is intended to communicate this reality that salvation is only had by faith. 
All right. So for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. Quoting Habakkuk 2.14, the righteous shall live by faith. This passage saved Martin Luther. That's how powerful the word is. The gospel breaks down walls. It melts cold hearts. It brings dead hearts to life. And of course, this passage then leads to Romans 3, 21 to 26, which is a whole sermon in and of itself. But it's very complex, yet very simple, yet very powerful, which Luther rightly said of Romans 3, 21 to 26, it's the centerpiece of the whole Bible. And, and that is absolutely true. It is the centerpiece of everything written in the Bible. And so he followed on with this passage that said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, we've been studying through the solas of the Reformation, so I can't go back and re-preach all those. So if you haven't heard those, you can go listen to them, and they've all built upon one another. So you understand that salvation is by faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, revealed in the Scriptures alone, right? For the righteousness... Of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I've given this passage more treatment in the previous week. So I'm not going to go back and do that again. But this faith by which the righteousness of God is had is the means by which people are saved. And the question for Luther is where, does we, where do we get this faith? Well, as he turned to the scriptures, he discovered this faith was not something we possess in and of ourselves. It's not something we conjure up. It in and of itself is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And these passages rocked Luther's theology of works. And they saved him and they launched a revolution that's still powerful and working and felt today. So let's take a look at the life of Martin Luther. He was born November 10th, 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. He died February 18th, 1546. He was 63 years old. His father was Hans Luther. Luther is a Latinized term that we're more familiar with, but his name was Hans Luther. He was a copper miner and his mother was a pious yet very superstitious Roman Catholic. Luther's father had groomed him from his early years to be a lawyer. So as a result... Being a good child of his parents, Luther was pursuing his education at first in uh, Eisenach in 1498 to 1501, and then at the University of Erfurt from 1502 to 1505 for his bachelor's and his master's degrees. And you do the math there, and you can start to see people started working on their bachelor's degrees long before we do. Um, they had a little more efficient system of education. Uh, as a former educator, I don't want to spend too much time dealing with that, but you can do the math and see this cat was young when he got his bachelor's degree, and he was, and he was working on his master's degrees. In July 1505, after one month of legal studies, 21-year-old Luther was caught in a thunderstorm. A lightning bolt knocked him to the ground, and in fear for his life, he cried out to the Catholic patroness of minors, St. Anne, he cried out, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. 
Well, lo and behold, Luther is not killed in this lightning storm. I have been struck by lightning. Some of you didn't know that. It's a great story. I'll tell you some other time. Uh, St. Anne didn't help me. Uh, but God in His grace helped Luther, not St. Anne. And so Luther, in his understanding, his Catholic theology, believed that St. Anne had done a good work for him. And his vow was that, as a result, I will now become a monk. Uh, she rescued him, and he decided to enroll as a monk. So in spite, though, of his father's opposition, and his father was angrily opposed, um, did not want him to do this, because in his, his eyes, this was not God's plan for his son. Luther kept his commitment, and in two weeks, he entered the Augustinian Order of Friars, which in and of itself, by the way, just let me say this, if I were to really deal with every detail of Luther's life, A, you wouldn't sit here uh, the whole time, and, and uh, it just it's, it's way too much, so I'm... And as we say, you say in Silver Creek, I'm giving it a lick and a promise, okay? We're just, we're going to hit the high points. This whole idea of Luther and God's providence joining an Augustinian order of friars is absolutely providential in and of itself because it informed his theology, which would inform the theology of the Reformation, which is one of the reasons you possess many of the doctrines you possess as baseline foundational as a Protestant. Okay? Started with Augustine and Augustine's debates with Pelagius. You don't even know who those two people are, perhaps. But your very understanding of biblical salvation is predicated on Augustine, his debates with Pelagius, Pelagius being condemned as a heretic because he was, and then that Augustinian order moving up to this time, and then Luther being an Augustinian led to these base foundations of sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, and sola Deo gloria. And just side note, this is how God works in history. There are no mistakes with God. There are no, there are no oopses with God. God's not backing up and redoing. God's running history. He's running history. And one of the things I hope you always take away from our studies on All Saints Day Sunday is the fact that God is in charge of history. He leaves us no doubt that He's working in history. So the fact that He joined an Augustinian order of friars is providential in and of itself. But Luther carried around a heavy burden. In 1507, he was ordained as a priest. And when he, when he came to preside over his first Mass, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation nearly crushed him. And that is this belief that as the, the priest presides over the Lord's Supper and they say the words of the blessing, that the bread and the cup actually become the body and the blood of Christ. And this, 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 this doctrine that he had been taught nearly crushed him because Luther began to wonder how can a sinful person such as myself be part of such holy things? It's a good question. Luther would say this, Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? Who am I? For I am dust and ashes, full of sin, and I am speaking to the the living, the eternal, and true God. And as a result of this very deeply ingrained, works-based theology of Catholicism, Luther tortured himself with common practices of the day, such as uh, extended times of, of prayer. And I know that sounds unspiritual, right? Because in extended times of prayer, we should probably pray more. But, but not in the sense of more prayer equals better prayer, right? Because th- there's a fine line between praying more and 
earning your favor with God because of praying more. Do you understand? There's a fine line there. And so this idea that praying more, uh, fasting, not in the sense of God watching, but fasting in the sense of earning favor with God, keeping a law, they actually practiced exposing themselves to freezing temperatures intentionally in order to kill the flesh and bring them into obedience. All of these efforts. Luther was even so tortured at points of his life that if he stepped on a bug and killed a bug, he would feel this crushing guilt on him. And he practiced all these things to try to push down his conscience and earn favor with God. Luther would say this, If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. You read his life and you think, Yeah, because if I'm comparing myself to Luther, I'm going to hell. Because this just this is, oh my gosh. I mean, this guy's piety was off the charts. Luther began to teach theology when he earned his degree and he moved on into professorship. He began to teach theology as a junior lecturer this next year under Johann von Stoppitz, 1460, who lived 1460 to 1524. Uh, Luther knew, he understood, the Bible's clear, God demands perfection. But he also understood that he could not attain that perfection. There was nothing he could do to get it. The church is teaching that one should simply do their best to be holy, and God would count that work to their righteousness haunted Luther. They recognized, biblically, that you you can't earn God's favor. So their doctrine taught just do your best, and your best is effective along with Christ and the sacraments and all the other things to get you to God. And so this haunted Luther because as Luther, being a professor of theology, beginning to teach through the Bible, started to study and began to understand from Scripture that man in his sin is dead. So Luther's logic was, how can a dead man do his best when there's no best to do? That's a good question. Stop it. Concerned for Luther because he so tortured himself emotionally, mentally, and even physically, in 1510, sent Luther to Rome, hoping that this trip would help calm Luther down a little bit and help soothe his tortured soul. Send him on a holiday. Send him to Rome to see the city. See all this amazing stuff. And just maybe, just maybe, Luther's tortured soul can be calmed. Luther, while there, climbed the stairs that had supposedly been transferred from Jerusalem to the city of Rome that Jesus had descended at Pilate's headquarters. And it was taught that if you likewise would ascend or descend these steps, kissing each one, that your sins would be erased. Would you ascend steps that people have walked on and put your lips on them? You see what I'm saying? Like, mm -mm. No. No. Thank you, Miss Georgia. You know, nobody in this room doing that mess, right? But they taught that if you do this, this, this act, this humbling yourself, this, this putting yourself into this position would erase your sin. And Luther, when he reached the top, had this thought. This, this is just the Lord, right? This is so God. What if this is not true? A simple question. What if this is not true? 
While he was in Rome, he saw the many other abuses. The unholy lives of the priests. Notice that these guys are no more holy than anybody else. And as a result of his trip to Rome, Luther wasn't encouraged. He was actually disheartened. It got worse. Because as he saw the abuses, he started to recognize nobody's working to do anything about it. If all this is true, why aren't they acting in accordance with it? Why aren't they tortured like me? Luther realized he could not do enough to earn God's approval. And he recognized there are so many people not even trying. When he returned from his trip, he transferred to the University of Wittenberg. And there he earned his doctorate in theology in 1512 when he became a lecturer. Now here's some dates for you. Luther started by teaching the Psalms. From 1513 to 1515. That's two years of psalm teaching. That's awesome. Theology people are like, that's amazing. We, We don't do it justice, man. That's beautiful. Luther taught Romans, and this is where, this is where the rubber started to meet the road for, for Luther. He taught Romans from 1515 to 1516. Then he taught Galatians from 1516 to 1517. And then he taught Hebrews from 1517 to 1519. Now, if you read through your Bible, you will recognize Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews are a fire hammer to works-based theology. They will absolutely obliterate any idea of man's innate goodness and of our effort to earn any favor with God. Those books leave no doubt about who we are, who God is, and how we are saved. And as Luther started reading and studying and teaching others, which, by the way, a key to your growth in the faith is to stop intaking and start outputting. It just is. And as, as an educator, this is one of the reasons we, 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 you test. It's, it's just neuroscience. It's, it's good praxis. A student doesn't learn till they can replicate. And the replication is part of the learning process, which is why if you're teaching somebody or anybody a job, you model it, you assist them, you watch them do it, then you release them to go be experts in it. Output is part of our growth. And, and as Luther started teaching this stuff, and he's working it out as he's writing and speaking it, it lands on him. It hits. And this glorious truth of who God is, who He is, and how He saves people led him to this marvelous event. The straw that broke the camel's back for Luther would be the issue of indulgences. In 1517, now you get the timing here, Luther's teaching the Psalms. So from 1513 to 1519, he's teaching through the Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. So in 1517, Pope Leo X gave authority to sell indulgences in Germany for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now an indulgence is a reduction of punishment for sin that is granted by the Roman Catholic Church after a sinner has made confession and they have done various other works and performed various prayers. And persons already in purgatory, and we're not even going to deal with purgatory, just made up, not biblical, Okay, persons already in purgatory could have their time reduced 
or even be freed with the purchase of indulgences by their relatives. Thus, Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar, was a fantastic salesman. He was a good communicator. And just because, by the way, just because somebody talks good doesn't mean they're right. You need to know that. We are entertained people. And if they talk good, man, they are all right. I like that. They talk good. And we don't say that because we're a little more educated. They're a good communicator. They're a good preacher, a good teacher. That means jack, squat, Arius. Arius, Arianisms, early church heresy. Arius was a gifted communicator. And Arius taught that Jesus was not the pre-existent eternal Christ, that he actually came into existence. Now, Arius, had he was condemned as a heretic, but Arius was one of the more gifted communicators, and he was a songwriter. And one of his songs stated this, There was when Christ was not. Well, that just rolls off the tongue. There was when Christ was not. And people memorize that stuff. Next thing you know, they're singing heresy. So just because it sounds good and it comes off of velvet lips doesn't make it right. However, we all recognize the power of good communication. And Johann Tetzel, Dominican friar, was a great salesman and there was not his equal. I wrote down in my notes in quotes, he was the man at selling indulgences. His most famous line was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he was known for putting on plays and dramas in which there would be actors standing behind this curtain that that represented the veil between the living and and those who were in purgatory. And they they would imitate the sound of a coin being thrown into a metal coffer. And one of the actors would jump through out of purgatory into heaven. And the the actors would be saying things like, We are your parents. We served you. We left you all of our worldly possessions. And you're going to leave us here in this place. And people, not knowing any different because the Scriptures were not in their language. The Mass was in Latin. The Scriptures were in Latin. They spoke German. Okay? And so they didn't know. This is what they're being told by the leadership and the authority. And, oh my gosh. Because we got... They're building St. Peter's. And they're just trying to get their relatives out of purgatory and make sure their sentence is reduced. Not realizing they're building St. Peter's in Rome. And Tetzel's selling this stuff and the money's flying in. Luther sees this deception and is not happy. Luther's study of Romans and Galatians ruined him for that kind of folly. <laughs> Absolutely ruined him for that kind of folly. If Scripture alone was the final say, you remember when we studied through Sola Scriptura, right? That, that's the linchpin. If, if the Scriptures are the final authority, not the Pope, not the councils, if Scripture is the final authority, then these abuses had to go. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed a list of 95 statements on the front door of the church, uh, the castle church at Wittenberg, which is basically like posting a blog. Literally. It, it wasn't... An act of defiance is very simply the way you publicly invited people to a dialogue on an issue. Just for Luther, there were 95 of them. And so he tacked the list on the doors of the castle church, offering public debate, particularly on the sale of indulgences and various other abuses that he recognized. What Luther didn't know is that his students were going to take that document, print it, because of this guy named Gutenberg. You know about the Gutenberg Press? 
This is how just God works. God put it in the heart of some smart Georgia Tech graduate, right? And, and just a little shout out to Georgia Tech because they need it. Um, a little shout out. Football's not going so well, so we'll give them a little shout out. Um, uh, to create a way to mass produce documents. And they're in the back, by the way. They're, they're Gutenberging their Bible verse. They got some stamps, and they're going to get the press. They're on. That's pretty cool, right? So that's kind of the that was the that was the, the version back in the day of being able to copy something from your laptop, right? Send it on over, boom, spit it out. <clears throat> so no longer did a document have to be copied by hand; it could be mass produced. And so they had this system down. And Luther's students took this document to a local publisher, and they had it published and printed and distributed. All over. And I put down in my notes here. uh, They had it printed and published. And before long, all Germany was woke. They were. They were woke. What had been hidden for hundreds of years in languages they didn't speak was now revealed in their native tongue. So, of course, when the Pope heard news of Luther's actions, he denounced Luther's work. For preaching dangerous doctrines. And he called Luther to Rome. Now Luther refused to appear. And he was ordered to Augsburg to appear before Cardinal Thomas Cacheton. That's French. If you're looking at the notes, it's C-A-J-E-T-A-N. It's French. Thomas Cacheton. Cacheton. Okay? Uh, if you're impressed with my French, that's okay. You can throw money my way. Uh, I won't build St. Peter's with it. I'll pay for my kid's broke wrist. <clears throat> the imperial uh, diet was being held. A diet, D-I-E-T, or diet, uh, was an assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is where Luther went to Augsburg. And the purpose of it was for Luther to recant. For him to repent of his statements. To take them back. When Luther appeared, he refused. And he made clear in his refusal that the Pope could err in his judgments because the teaching was and still is that the Pope is the final say. He is the final say. He has final authority. So what he says goes. I encourage you today, by the way, you should follow the Pope on Twitter. If you're a Twitter person, you need to follow him. There are people all over the world you need to be in touch with. You just need to listen to what's happening. Whatever you think about social media, it's got its good and bad side. You you need to pay attention. The world explodes, and in a matter of five seconds, you can know about it in America on Twitter. It's a fantastic source of news. and Without entertainment, because right now your sources of news are entertainment-based, not news-based. Both sides, all right? So you need access to what's actually going on. So you need to follow some people on the Twitter. Just follow the Pope. It's fascinating. And so this idea that the Pope could not err and he was the final say was obviously rubbing Luther the wrong way because of what he had been studying and he refused to recant, made clear that the Pope could err in his pronouncements. Matter of fact, Luther insisted that the Pope's claims be proven with Scripture. So you think that? Where is that in Scripture? That, 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 that took some courage. The last person, because the last person to bring that issue up was a guy named John Huss. And John Huss was executed for such stuff. So Luther literally was putting his life on the line. Luther left Augsburg fearful for his life. However, 
One of God's good providential graces was he enjoyed the protection of a vital figure in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the elector Frederick III of Saxony. And because Frederick had such a high power in the Holy Roman Empire, he gave Luther quarter, loved Luther actually, believed in Luther, and he protected him from the Holy Roman Empire. So Luther had a safe haven. Through all the hardship that was coming on Luther, he continued to read and he continued to study. And Romans 1.17 was what caused the light of the gospel to break through the darkness of his heart and the darkness of an errant theology. And I, what I want to do is just read for you what Luther said about this passage. And I'm going to do my best to not be emotional when I read it. I'll try to read it slow because it's just Luther's words. And I want you to hear it. If you if you got access to the blog, you can look on MitchJolly.com. You can look on your phone, your tablet. If you can print it off later or look on your computer at home. I just want you to hear Luther's commentary on Romans 1.17 because it's absolutely amazing. Here's what he said. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel... What a misunderstanding of the gospel, right? And also by the gospel threatening us with the righteousness or with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. At last, by the mercy of God. Meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Stop. When is the last time you're so troubled by a challenge in your soul that the Scriptures were your meditation day and night? When was the last time something bothered you so much that the Scriptures became your bread and your water and your life? I think for us, for me, it is so easy to be distracted with five million wasteful things that I bother my soul, and I bother my life, and I bother my conscience, looking for or even maybe avoiding the issue, rather than going to the text and letting the Lord speak and teach and lead and show me the way. And so for Luther, night and day, this was such a troublesome issue for him that he meditated day and night. And he said, I gave heed to the context of the words. Luther set the stage for us on how to study the Bible, which we'll talk about in just a minute. I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live or lives by a gift of God. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. A glorious statement that 
What I began to understand is that God gives me His righteousness. He doesn't hold His righteousness over me as something by which He is there to condemn me, but He holds His righteousness out and He Himself meets the righteous standard so that through faith I am given that precious gift and it is not counted against me, but it is counted for me. Luther says there, I felt I was born again and it passed through open gates into heaven. Amen. The gospel landed in power. You noticed earlier, Luther saw the gospel as a heavy and burdensome thing. Not something that liberated lost sinners. And as he gave study to the word and made use of the context and understood it, he was saved. All this would eventually lead to the diet of worms. We sometimes joke, the diet of worms. That does not mean you eat worms. It is an imperial gathering of the Holy Roman Empire. And it was at Worms, the city. Luther was summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to appear before this imperial diet to officially recant. In spite of being warned by his friends, Luther went. When he arrived, all of his writings, all of his works were laid on a table and they were put in front of him. Everything he had published, his sermons, they were stacked on the table. And Johann Eck, the Archbishop of Treves, 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 I may have that pronounced wrong, asked this question, will you retract them? Will you retract them? Recognizing John Huss's fate, others in the faith who were burned at the stake, killed by the church for challenging their authority. Luther does something amazing. You think, if you... Look at that and look at his life so far. He'd pound the table and say, all of you go fall off, off, off the ledge into fiery torment forever. But that's not what Luther does. Luther humbly and shakingly and fearfully asks for time to think and pray. So Luther goes away and he spends the, the rest of the day and the night in prayer and studying Scripture because he recognizes what's at stake here. This, this isn't just defending my blog. This isn't just responding to an angry email. This is, I may be burned at the stake for this. I mean, do I, is my game on? <laughs> Am I right? Are we right? The next day, April 18th, five, uh, April 18th, 1521, he came with his now famous reply. And here's what Luther said. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason... For I do not trust either the Pope or the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. That's awesome. That's that's courage. That's courage. That's emotional, mental strength put on display right there. That's awesome. Well, Charles V condemned Luther as a heretic and placed a price on his head, and he was given 21 days for safe passage to get his stuff in order. And on his way from the Diet of Worms, on the way he was kidnapped by his supporters. Uh... I guess that's love, right? (laughs) 
kidnapped by his supporters and he was hidden in the castle of Wartburg near Eisenach. This is beautiful. While hidden in the castle, <laughs> this, I'm sorry, y'all, there's just so much stuff. This is where Luther developed some of his bowel problems and his gas problems. And he talks a lot about that. And I just think it's so funny because he was sitting all the time. He couldn't move about and he developed some bowel issues. While he was hidden away in this castle, he gave himself to the translation of the New Testament. From April to Easter. April to Easter. Do, do, do the work there. This is roughly three weeks. Luther worked on the translation. And he completed it in three weeks. So then he began to work on polishing things up. And then the German New Testament was published September 21st, 1522. That's crazy. That's insane. That that's a that's a that's a gospel driven passion to make sure what changed your life gets in the hearts and minds of the people so that their lives can be transformed. We're going to get to some takeaways here in a moment, but the centrality of the scriptures for Luther was key and is key for the Reformation. The scriptures were now in the heart language of the people, and it would spread the fire of the Reformation far and wide. And now there was absolutely nothing the church or the Holy Roman Empire could absolutely do because the Reformation was in the hands of the people. When asked to explain his success, and more importantly, the success of the Reformation, here's Luther's reply. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. (laughs) And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. There's a great, this is totally off the cuff, and I hope I don't mess this up, but Mark chapter 4. Yeah, Mark chapter 4. This is a passage Luther cited particularly in reference here. I should have put this at the end of the quote. In uh, Mark chapter 4, verse uh, 26 through 29, Jesus is telling about, uh, he's telling a parable about the kingdom of God, the parable of the gospel. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Luther often quoted this parable to talk about how powerful the scriptures are. And here in this particular quote, he's absolutely right. I just preached, I just taught, I just put this out there and it did what Jesus said it would do. Because the gospel is powerful. God's word is powerful. And so Luther simply said, I, I, I did absolutely nothing here but preach the scriptures. And God did his work. Now, I want to say this. He, he was underselling this role. Because while he's preaching, he's also managing disciples He is organizing now a movement of an entire nation into small groups of churches that would become the Lutheran church. So he's underselling his role here. Because sometimes people take Luther's quotes and apply it to church ministry that the only job of a pastor is just to preach the Bible. And that's just false. Anybody that's in ministry knows that's not the way it works. Yeah, no. Right? You're sitting in chairs. <laughs> somebody, somebody had to organize that. That just doesn't like poof. 
right? That's, that's not the way it works. Ministry is loaded with toilet flushing, trash taken out. And so Luther's grossly underselling the role that he played here because he mobilized the movement of a people in the churches called the Lutheran Church. And he, he didn't want it to be called the Lutheran Church, but since he was Luther and he kind of birthed the movement by God's grace, they called it the Lutheran Church. But Luther's point is that what changes people and what moves history is Scripture. Because Scripture preaches the gospel. Luther got married, which is awesome. Because this is, Luther's life is full of funny things. and uh, Luther would help nuns escape from their cloisters and help get them married off. What a great ministry, right? That's pretty awesome. Now you want to... Whose domain is that one going to be? Talk domain engagement. Whose domain is rescuing nuns from cloisters? What a ministry. <laughs> one particular, Catherine von Bora, had a couple of failed attempts through no fault of her own. And this is new ministry. <laughs> Escape nuns, marrying dudes. Who figures that out? That's not on Love Connection, man. I don't know how you do that. So, interesting situation. So, Catherine von Bora ended up not marrying anybody, so Luther married her. This wasn't dating game. This wasn't, let's go out a couple times and see. He's like, well, you're not married. Let's do this. <laughs> Which there's so much to learn here from this too. About our, so much of our modern dating is so broke. We, 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 we've got it predicated on feeling and attraction. Not gospel-centered, Christ-focused, exalting of the image of God in male and female to run together toward the kingdom of God. It's not complicated. This is, Tommy Nelson said this at one point. A great study on the Song of Solomon. Run to the kingdom as fast and as hard as you can. Look to the right or the left. Look at somebody running at the same speed you are and run it together. It's that, it really is that simple. It's not complicated. It's just, we just, our culture has screwed it up. It ain't dating, it ain't courting, it ain't none of that. If you're, if you're still stuck on dating and courting, you're missing the point. It's Jesus and His kingdom. Same speed, let's do this together. It really is that simple. But so much of the lies we buy of our culture... Because here's what happened. It's not like Luther and Catherine married and realized, oh, this isn't going to work. They had an incredible fruitful marriage. They loved each other. They had an incredible life. They had great children. It was a happy home. She had a killer ministry, which I think I've decided we're going to do her biography next year. Because she was astounding. So they married in April 1525. He was 45 and she was 26. She liked the older man. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Luther said the reason he married, this is awesome. He married to upset the Pope. To make angels laugh and make devils weep. That's good, man. That's good motivation. Uh, They had six children. Exceptionally happy home. Luther would then preside over a growing movement that went way beyond his intended results. Uh, for example, uh, 1524 to 1526, a peasant war erupted, likely likely fueled by some of the freedoms people were experiencing because they now recognized the trappings that held them down. Uh, and this kind of leads into some of Luther's warts a little bit. Uh, because when asked to to justify what was happening, Luther sided with the prince and the nobility and the peasant revolt was crushed and a lot of people died. Um, Luther would wrestle with church disunity uh, and church organization. 
because I don't know if you've noticed, there's nothing in the Bible that says do it like this. The gospel goes into a culture and begins to form itself. And so it's, it's the role of the church to discover how it covenants to do God's mission. And so Luther struggled with that. It was hard. And he and Catherine did that together. Uh, Luther lived in a former monastery that had a lot of rooms in it. And so they, he was given that by the German people. And so they constantly invited his students over. They were constantly hospitable. Catherine, had, she created an economy. She was, listen, this is true. And this may offend some of you guys because you may be teetotalers. But you just have to get over that. She was the first, she was craft brewing before craft brewing was cool. True, it's true, it's just a fact. And so, so they brewed more beer than you can ever imagine. And at their table in the evenings, they invited their students for theological discussions. As a matter of fact, there is a magazine today, you can subscribe to it, called Table Talk. And Table Talk is named after this ministry. And it was called Table Talk, in which they invited the students. And Catherine had created an economy. They were selling, making money, because some people had lost, lost so much in, in the Reformation. She created an economy. People were buying and selling. And they would come over and they would, they would drink a tall one and talk about theology. And there was this constant flow and flux of life centered around the gospel in their home. And that's pretty cool. And he didn't have to date her. Didn't have to court her. Didn't have to do anything. Just focused on Christ and His kingdom. And God produced this incredible home. Luther uh, traveled in January 23rd, January 23rd, 1546, to his hometown of Eisleben to oversee a family dispute. He was now 63 years old. And he succumbed to all of this work that had gone on. And, and frankly... He didn't know how to rest, and, uh, and it had broken his health. And knowing his life was coming to an end, he wrote out his will, and he started his will by saying, I am well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And Luther's last words were, we are beggars, this is true. And Luther died on February 18, 1546. He was carried to Wittenberg, and... Uh, Thousands mourned his death, and he was buried in the castle church at Wittenberg immediately below the pulpit where he had often stood to preach. And you can go there to this day to the castle church and see um, the location underneath which he is buried. Luther had some warts, though. There's only one hero of the faith, and that's Jesus. And we live in a culture of hero worship. We like spiritual heroes. We just do. I, I, I mean, I think you just... You should be able to read culture. Part of, the, part of the thing that Luther did so well is he read his culture. He understood the world in which he lived. And he knew how to prophetically preach the Scriptures to it. And it kept him in trouble. Because people don't, they don't like that. They don't want the Scriptures to come at their issue. And cultures don't like that, particularly when the... In this instance, when the state and the church create the culture and they're merged, that, that, that created serious problems. And Luther preached to those things. He understood how to apply those things. And so people love Luther and they hated Luther. We like people, we like people like that. We, 
we like people who do those kind of things in our spiritual climate of Western Christianity. I think there's this whole culture of of heroism. I mean, my gosh, Captain America's the thing, man. Who doesn't like Captain America? If you don't, you need to get saved. Like Captain America, I'm pretty sure is Christian, right? You remember like when Anyway, so we love heroes. Heroes are amazing because they open our eyes to to this beautiful reality. And I think it's an image of God issue. I think it's stamped on our soul that there is a problem and there is a solution and we need somebody to bring that solution. And and that's that's that every hero movie is based on that whole storyline, isn't it? Right. And, And the reality is the reality is that's the story of the gospel. This is why it's, a, it's good for Christians to watch movies. And, and, and I love unpacking the gospel because what you begin to see is there's always a conflict. There's always a protagonist and an antagonist. And the good ones end up after a major conflict and, and the good guy is kind of getting beat up like Rocky. The good guy fights back and wins. I mean, that's the story of the gospel. Rocky's not the gospel, but you understand the storyline. Like, there's a problem. Clubber Lane is is causing an issue. But in the ring, he may be bloodied, but he makes a comeback and Clubber Lane is down. And he stands and he has a statue in Philadelphia and he doesn't even exist. Right? You know the story, right? This is the story of the gospel. There is a there is a creator. There's a creator. His name is Jesus. He made all things good, but enters the antagonist who breaks and maims and hurts and kills. But on that hill, far away, stood an old rugged cross. And He came and He took the best shots that the curse could give. And on the third day, He rose and He crushed the enemy. And He made salvation available for all who would repent and believe the good news. And so, we need to recognize these storylines because they are the baseline of created order. Luther knew how to read that and he understood that and he could make those applications. And so what we, we're looking for a hero. We love hero worship. And what I want us to see is there are no heroes of the gospel story except Jesus. No heroes. And so when you look at Luther's warts, you need to understand every person we think is a spiritual hero has hidden warts. They just do. They have warts and they're ugly. I have ugly warts, nasty things. And, and then those people know have ugly warts, nasty things. Because there's only one hero, Jesus. Luther's warts, unfortunately, for people who gain this kind of fame and recognition, get to be seen by all. I would argue in our context for those, those men and women who don't put Jesus up on the throne as one, and they exalt themselves, Jesus exposes their warts in time, and we see them as they fall. Because Jesus will not share His glory with another. Everybody's flawed. Luther's flaws are many. Luther's fatal flaw, though, was a rancid, nasty, gross anti-Semitism. Um, we don't have time to unpack how he gained that and why it manifests itself as it did. But whether we like it or not, Luther's ranting on the Jewish people would be used by the Nazi party to annex the Lutheran Church, and the rise of the Third Reich. Um, this capitulation to the Third Reich by the Lutheran Church resulted in the birth of the Confessing Church, which we studied Bonhoeffer a few years ago, was a founding member, 
And so the likes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth moved out of the Lutheran church, started the confessing church, which would be highly persecuted as the Lutheran church just caved and gave in. This is why we follow God's word and follow Jesus, not people. So don't hear Luther's our hero. Luther's not our hero. Jesus is our hero. What I want you to hear is Jesus took Luther and used him as a great instrument in history. And he died and was buried and didn't rise. But there are some things we can gain from his life. Two highlights very quickly. He possessed a clear and deep conviction about Scripture. Luther would highlight and bring to light clear doctrines of the Bible that we often take for granted as Protestants. Um, practices that are associated with Bible study and preaching that we just assume everybody has. Which is why we need to do systematic theology periodically. You need to get a good systematic theology textbook. Wayne Grudem's, in my opinion, is the best because it's readable, well organized. And so it's a good textbook to have on hand. Some examples of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. How do we get our Bible? I do a whole talk on that when we do worldview stuff. And I, it's been a while. We probably need to revisit that. But the whole concept, the whole teaching of Scripture about the inspiration of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit's the author of the book. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. The Scriptures, although they are written by men, are neither of men nor from men, but from God. Luther brought that back to the surface and popularized it so that we take it for granted. The inerrancy of Scripture, right? That the Scriptures are pure and trustworthy and they don't contain anything contrary to fact. Thanks to Luther. The supreme authority of Scripture. They have the final say. The clarity of Scripture. Luther taught so much on the clarity of Scripture. This would be a, a sermon in and of itself. The Bible's never unclear. The problem's not the Bible. The problem's us. The Bible's clear. The problem's us. It's even compounded by a culture that doesn't read and don't and doesn't have a concept of connecting verbs and and, and nouns, right? And, and stuff grammatically, right? That's a, that's a problem. But the Scriptures are clear. The sufficiency of the Scriptures, our submission to the Bible as our final authority, the need to interpret literally when it's clear that it should be literal, right? i got a great story. I don't have a lot of time, but I attend a, a thing, a prayer time here on Tuesdays with some, some people in town. And it's interesting. I struggle going to that. I don't have you tell you all the reasons um but there was a really interesting spiritual thing that happened this week where a lady this is true story she's a witch okay she came in and is trying to curse stuff if you've never experienced that this is all over rome if you're if you're from rome you probably know some of this but this is rome's a dark city okay it just is and so she comes into this room and these are guys you know pastors that you'd be well familiar with guys that are friends and and uh and she starts calling out the seven leaders who are the seven gates of the city and, and to throw curses on them in this meeting. You're like, oh, jeez, good God Almighty. And so one guy in particular kind of steps up and, and he starts, and, here's, and this is what's interesting, what's interesting. He handles it well. Thank God he did a good job handling that situation. But the, then he, he waxed eloquent on some passages in the Old Testament, completely allegorizing them and taking them out of their context. And, and and I'm not I don't want to you know throw shade on the brother because I mean he handled the situation as best as anybody could possibly handle it. But what was interesting is this whole idea 
of failing to properly understand how to read and study Scripture. Now, we're going to be teaching through Old Testament um, surveys starting in January on Wednesday evenings. And you've heard a little bit about that, and we'll hear some more about that. But the reality is, Luther brought to light the need to study the Bible literally, unless it's clear it's not literal. That, that's a discipline. Let's move on, because we're going to run out of time. So, reminded us of how to study the Bible. The need for the Holy Spirit to illumine the text and make it land. The role of the law to show us the depth of our sin and the need for Jesus. Basically, the book of Galatians. The, the nature of Christ's exaltation in Scripture. The cross-centered nature pointing us to the work of the cross where justice is done and righteousness is revealed. And the gospel invitation. Do you know the reason that in some of your churches growing up in the South there was an invitation at the end of the service? is because of Luther. He believed every time the gospel was presented there needed to be an invitation for people to respond. That's not Southern Baptist. That's Luther. Luther was passionate, happy, and a wee bit salty. He was full of life. He loved to laugh. Um, he had a passion for righteousness, being right, and honoring God, and speaking prophetically to his culture. He sharpened those around him with his knowledge of the Word and his passion for it. Luther was also salty. Luther said some hard things to people, speaking to his culture. I even put a link in the notes to the... This is funny. This is actually be very entertaining for you. It's called the Luther Insult Generator. If you go click on that link, it'll... He, a quote from one of Luther's writings, and very insulting. And then it says, insult me again. And you click and you get another quote from Luther. It's absolutely hilarious. But these are true things that he said. So if you're sensitive to crass language, don't go to the Luther Insult Generator. But if you think that's funny, go and click it because you'll be well entertained. He's a salty individual. But you need to understand, Luther, his saltiness came out of a deep passion to see Jesus exalted and the idols of his culture crushed. And, and, and lest you think he was being over the top, I challenge you to go read Ezekiel. Ezekiel said some stuff that's X-rated. Applied to their idolatry. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not quoting it for you. Because I'd get really red. The point is, sometimes crassness is necessary to crush idolatry. That's God's language in Ezekiel. And just to challenge your view of Scripture, God said that through Ezekiel. So don't be insulted by Luther. Just recognize there are times to speak prophetically to idols and crush them. To exalt Christ. So what can we imitate about his life? Four quick things and I'm done. Number one, love God, love his word, and sow it abundantly. Love God, love his word, and sow it abundantly. It's supernatural. It's powerful. It will save. It will produce the fruit of the kingdom. Two, be passionate about God's glory, serving God's people, and giving your life away for the kingdom. Luther had no concern for his health. No concern for anything other than the kingdom of God and serving his people. Number three, know your culture. Know your time and history and speak to it from God's perspective. There's, there's a need for that in, in the church in the West today. You need to know our time, know our culture, and be able to speak God's Word to it prophetically. People ask me, I say that a lot, and I say, what do, what do you mean speak prophetically? I mean speak to it the way the prophets spoke to it in the Bible. So if you don't know how to speak prophetically, go read the prophets. And when you see how they addressed kings, 
councils, cultures, you do the same. That make sense? Speak prophetically to your culture using God's word and watch God transform history. And then finally, laugh and be happy in Christ. Luther is this great contrast in prophetic speaking and laughing. And, and, and I can't quite psychologically put together for you how those two come together. But I think they do. Because what I see in the Bible is all over the text contrasted. God speaking harshly to idolatry and various issues. And at the same time turning around in Zephaniah 3.17 and singing and enjoying His people. Singing over them and shouting over them, over His people. The God who gave David the instruction to play loud sounding cymbals and joyously bring those things into His presence. So somehow Luther, and I don't think Luther did this on purpose, I think it's just God's work in Luther that there's these contrasting beautiful components of the character of God in Luther's life where he spoke harshly to hard things and laughed a lot. It's okay to be like that. Because that's what Jesus did. Go read the Gospels. Jesus enjoyed being with His disciples and then He'd turn around and tell the Pharisees, how will you ever escape hell? So you know what? That's okay to be like that. Laugh and speak prophetically. It speaks the nature and character of God, exalting His glory and enjoying His people. Romans 1.17 The Gospel reveals the righteousness of God and that passage changed Luther. My prayer is it has changed you. And I trust that the gospel has landed on your heart and taken you from death to life. If it hasn't, I pray that this morning those passages did something in you that might take you from death to life. But either way, the end of those things is that we exalt Jesus. That we lift Christ up. That was Luther's point. That was the point of the text that he preached is that Christ be exalted. And so may that happen in you this morning. And we're going to sing. And we're going to sing in response to God's word. And we're going to bring Christ's exaltation in our singing. So let's do that together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would take these lots, but not even sufficient meditations on the life of Luther as a result of your word. Romans 1, 17 and 3, 21 to 26. These centerpieces of scripture. Pray you would take these things and that you would use them to bring about good in the lives of your people. And I pray that you would... Take some, perhaps, from death to life. Or maybe, perhaps, take some from life to more life. Pray that you'd speak to our world. God, I pray you'd speak to me about how more needs to be rooted out of my flesh and the lies that I believe, and the things that I don't do well, God, I pray you'd root those things out, for I'm a fool. And were it not for your grace, I would be lost and condemned. But thank you for the gospel. So I pray, God, that you would take me from life to life, and more life. And Lord Jesus, I want more of you. I want to know you more. I want to be better at talking better about you, because you're better. So Jesus, I pray you do that in me, do that in us. God, I pray that in some way you would hide Luther and exalt Jesus this morning. And let Luther just be a vehicle by which we see your work in history and bring you much praise. So as we praise you now, be exalted in Jesus' name.